The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 11. Well, this morning I'm going to do something that's not only a little dangerous, but a little ridiculous, which is to talk about the crucifixion. Later on this morning, as a matter of fact, we'll see that the text says, the Lucan text says of Peter, while he was still talking, he heard the cock crow. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to labor all morning under the judgment of that text. But there's no way around it because we're studying the Gospel of Luke and so we're now at the Passion story in the Gospel of Luke. The best one could hope is to, I think this was Thomas Merton's formula, is to try to speak without breaking the silence. I don't think I can do that. But that, that ought to be the goal of this kind of uh, undertaking. What's lost in all the talk is what's treasured in the in the theology and Christology of the Christian tradition, which is, who was it that got crucified? And as you know, I approach these things from an anthropological perspective, not because I want to stay at the anthropological level, but because I have learned from my association with René Girard that that is a tremendously fertile entree into the, into the depth of the biblical tradition. So I tend to begin there and I and uh, never never wander too far away from an anthropological understanding of these things because it grounds us in reality. On the other hand, there are things more profound than that that are touched by this story and by this text. So I want to I want to speak of those as well, or at least allude to them. And at the heart of those loftier things is the question about the identity of the crucified one. For Christians, the one crucified is the very God himself, is the living God, is the incarnate God. And Christianity's whole Trinitarian theology and Christology is uh, is an attempt to come to grips with that inscrutable mystery. So I think I want to begin by dealing with that somewhat. And I'm not a theologian, as you know, so I can't deal with it in a terribly sophisticated way. But the Christian tradition says that Jesus was, or is, the incarnate Word of God. When the Bible speaks of the Word of God, I think what it means is God's self-revelation to the world, which is documented in the biblical text. 
the biblical God reveals himself to the world historically, over time, gradually, according to humanity's capacity for assimilating this revelation. And that's what in the New Testament, the Johannine text, refers to that revelatory power as the power of the paraclete. So the biblical God reveals himself to the world in history, and the, and the Bible is the instrument of that revelation or the, or the documentation that tells us about the history of God's self-revelation to the world. So the Bible is the word of God, we say. And then we say that Christ is the incarnate word. Now, this is a little bit like people who say, well, have you read the book? And they say, no, I'm going to wait till it comes out as a movie. Uh, when Jesus came on the earth, the Bible came out as a person. The whole thing. The whole thing became a person. So, if you don't have time to read the whole thing, there's this person who is it who is the incarnate Word of God. And he is God's self-revelation to the world. And where exactly does that self-revelation take place? Or where is its central manifestation? And the answer is the cross. So, if you have trouble, if you don't have trouble with the idea that Jesus is the incarnate God, then either you have slipped from the clutches of the rational confines and are living in the blessed air of the mystics and saints, or you haven't thought about it very seriously. In, e in either case, my way of trying to articulate that would be this. If you want to see the living God with your eyes open, look at Jesus on the cross. Now, I suppose there are other ways. But if you want to see the living God with your eyes open, look at Jesus on the cross. And so that tells us, that is the revelation of the living God. That tells us what the God that Jesus introduces us to what that God is all about. That is the God that dies, that submits to the passion, that takes all of the abuse. Now, one of the things we say about this event is that because of it or through it, Christ has taken away the sin of the world. And then, you, then the question is, well, what is the sin of the world? The clue might be to ask ourselves, where did he go to take it away? He went to the cross. He didn't go to the, uh, you know, the king's counting house where he's counting out his money. He didn't go to the brothels. He went to the cross to take away the sin of the world. And so that may tell us something about the sin of the world. Now, the sin of the world 
is in the singular is the sin of the world because it's the sin that brought the world into being. It brought the fallen world into being. God brought the real world into being. The sin of the world brings the fallen world into being. Well, anthropologically, the sin of the world that brings the fallen world into, the, into being is a scapegoating, a mob scapegoating scene structurally identical to the crucifixion. So in order to take away the sin of the world, Jesus goes exactly to the scene of the crime. Steps right into the middle of it and looks down on his persecutors and s declares, and I always say this, every week I have the most important verse in the Bible to, to share with you. And this week it is, forgive them for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. That doesn't mean that this rabble in Palestine at that moment didn't know what they did. It means that this is the situation, this is the source of all ignorance. This, this scene is the source of all human ignorance. It's where we fall into the grip of the liar and the father of lies. And Jesus went there to break the grip. And I think we now have the anthropological wherewithal, thanks very largely to René Girard, for explicating that to some extent. It's such a tremendous mystery, we'll never be able to uh, explicate it in a way that will satisfy the little narrow rational categories that we have. Nevertheless, I do think that uh, we can, we, we no longer have to feel intellectually apologetic with regard to some of these very profound Christian proclamations. So, let me begin with something that uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, wrote. He said, When God sends his own living word to his creatures, he does so not to instruct them about the mysteries of the world, nor primarily to fulfill their deepest needs and yearnings, Rather, he communicates and actively demonstrates such unheard-of things that man feels not satisfied but awestruck by a love which he never could have hoped to experience otherwise. For who would have dared describe God as love without having first received the revelation of the Trinity in the acceptance of of the cross by the Son. Now that's not a simple statement, but the gist of it is how could we have possibly understood God as love without the cross? Because look at the world. The world is filled with violence and hatred and and uh, suffering. And then to just say, to, to look up from that, you know, to look up from that and say, God is love. None of the ancients did that. All of the ancients looked up and said, God is wrath. God is the wrath that will, that causes the, these terrible things and that puts an end to them. That's what the ancients said. And the Christian faith 
Christian tradition says God is love, and, and that that is grounded in the cross. Because God's incarnate word died on that cross, suffered all of those things. So, as you can already tell, I'm going to ramble this morning because I don't know exactly how to talk about the crucifixion. I could, I suppose, just talk about the Lucan text. But the Lucan text isn't just a text. And this is not, of course, in literary deconstruction. <laughs> There's something on the other side of that text. There's a truth to which this text is referring, both a historical truth and a larger truth than that. So I'm a little at a loss, so I'm going to ramble a little bit. But first let me just talk about the site of the revelation. Christ crucifies the revelation of a living God who is, the, who, who is love. And as Paul says, we must, we must preach Christ crucified. That's, that is the crux of it. The word crux indicates that. So first, a word about the location. I've already spoken of this, but just to... I mean, these are things... I kind of jiggled my notes and they all fell out of, you know, little footnotes I had and other things. And I pr maybe even shared these with you before, I probably have. There, uh, a scholar whose name is uh, Globe wrote a book in 1969 entitled The Bog People, and it's about bodies that were uh, preserved in the bogs of Jutland. And the bodies were naked, strangled, and with their throats cut. And they dated from the early Iron Age. They had been preserved in this bog. Uh, and Globe concludes that they were ritually sacrificed, and he was especially interested in, in one uh, of the bodies whose head had been completely severed and whose head is now in a, uh, uh, a museum in uh, Silkeborg, which is uh, a museum built on the ancient ritual site of the mother goddess uh, in whose name and on whose be Hest, this sacrifice very likely took place. And Globe argues that the mother goddess ritual that in the mother goddess rituals the goddess's incessant need for new bridegrooms required that vic victims be constantly sacrificed and sent to her. And if she was pleased with these victims, she would then renew the fertility of the women and of the land in the spring. This is a very ancient. And I share it with you just to speak for a minute anthropologically about the locale of the full and final biblical revelation, which is that same place. Anne Ross is a Celtic scholar who wrote a chapter entitled The Religion of the Pagan Celts uh, in an anthology. And in it, uh, she says the following. Moving from sanctuaries and shrines, we now come to consider the nature of the actual deities themselves. But before going on to look at the nature of some of the individual deities and their cults, one can perhaps bridge the gap, as it were, by considering a symbol which, in its way, sums up the whole Celtic pagan religion and is as representative of it as is, for example, the sign of the cross in Christian context. This is the symbol of the severed human head. 
In all its various modes of iconographic representation and verbal presentation, one may find in this symbol the hard core of Celtic religion. It is indeed a kind of shorthand symbol for the entire religious outlook of the pagan Celts." Quote. A couple weeks ago I talked about the tombs of Sapan, the, the uh, uh, Moki culture in Peru where um, the human sacrifice was right at the center of their cultural uh, enterprise. And uh, at the same time we talked about the uh, Parthenon frieze, which is a human sacrifice uh, thing. So all of these are way, I, I, I just invoke them now as a way of locating the revelation that will, that will take away the sin of the world. So now we, we could put it this way. So now we know this is like a detective story. If We don't know what the sin of the world is because we're living inside of it. So we say to ourselves, here's something that took away the sin of the world. How did it do that? What is it? Well, first of all, we want to know where it happened. That would give us a clue. And then it was the cross. There are two things about the cross. Well, there are more than two things, but one thing is the cross was a, was a Roman form of punishment. It was the most heinous form of punishment. It was reserved for the lowest scum of the earth. Only the worst, most despicable criminals were crucified. And so that's one thing from the Roman point of view. From the Jewish point of view, we had to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, 21st chapter, we find this. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body must not remain on the tree overnight. You must bury him the same day, for one who has been hanged on a tree is accursed by God. And the Jews of the first century understood this passage to refer to Roman crucifixion. What it means is, it's like the understanding in the first century that if you're, in terms of the Jewish understanding of things, that if you have a disease or somehow suffering, it's because you're out of favor with God. Likewise, if circumstances lead to the situation where you're crucified, it's an automatic. It's an automatic. You see, you're beyond the pale. And the New Testament biblical scholar, whose name is Hengel, wrote the following. This form of execution, crucifixion, more than any other, had associations with human sacrifice, which was never completely suppressed in antiquity. Because large strata of the population welcomed the security and the worldwide peace which the Roman Empire brought with it, the crucified victim was defamed both socially and ethically in popular awareness. And this impression was heightened still further by the religious elements involved, namely Deuteronomy 21. So, if this is God's self-revelation of the world, where do you go to be right at the heart of the sin of the world in order to break its grip? And In other words, what I'm saying is there's a kind of logic, a kind of logos to this 
that we can now begin to appreciate because of a of an increasing anthropological understanding of our condition. So that's at the anthropological level. I suppose the I suppose one of the most insightful things that has ever been said relating to this question about the cross and its meaning was something that two things actually two things that Simone Weil said about the cross uh, and this first one sounds crazy and people probably can uh, accuse her of being a uh, masochist or something but she says every time I see the crucifix I sin the sin of envy well that's pretty now maybe I should say something since this is a stream of consciousness endeavor this morning um, so I tend to talk about things anthropologically but everything is there in the cross so it's not something that has to do with culture it's something that has to do with me and what does it what does it reveal to me well I guess there are no limits to that but one could say this it reveals to me how to live and how to die it teaches us human beings how to lay down our lives that's the biblical message the biblical message is lay down your life and it doesn't mean run out and get martyred I mean it may mean that someday but it means lay down your life meaning give it away it's given to you you give it back and in giving it back you give it back to God through others and it's that was what fascinated me so about Jean-Luc Marion's understanding of the exchange the ontologizing exchange between the creator and the creature constant reciprocity of giving and receiving giving and receiving which generates an ontology that cannot be located in either in either pole of the exchange but is some mysterious bonding <coughs> between the two and the cross teaches us about that it, it teaches us how to lay down our lives to give our lives and also all of us are going to die it teaches us how to lay down our lives literally I had a dear friend who died of cancer a few years ago and I went to see him in the hospital towards the end and there he was and this is in a this is in a big state uh, university hospital secular hospital you know high-tech etc etc and there he was lying on his side and the, and he brought his own crucifix and the and the darn thing was about 18 inches high and it had you know it was a, sort of a Mexican crucifix with the whole you know the whole thing he had it there where on his side he could look right at it and uh, he was in pain and but he said to me uh, every time the pain gets you know comes on 
I look over at my captain brother and I try to learn from him. Well, you know, for most of us, those are charming stories, but they're more than that. Anyway, so that's what Simon Bay said. Every time I see the crucifix, I send the sin of envy. Well, you can figure that out. I don't know what else to say about it. But she said another thing that's more intelligible, which is she said, the false God always turns suffering into violence, and the true God turns violence into suffering. And that's pretty amazing. So, anyway, those are inadequate ramblings as a way of maybe getting us a, a little bit into the mood of receiving this revelation as we go through Luke's rendition of it. So, the text tells us that it was the time of Passover was approaching. The chief priests and scribes were looking for an opportunity to put Jesus to death, but they were afraid of the people. One of the things about the New Testament in this regard is that it is so clear. It's much better than modern political science. Modern political science is not quite true, but you could say this, you know. Modern political science still labors under the illusion that the leaders of the crowd are in control of the crowd. It's, I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly the New Testament is not under that illusion at all. The New Testament is absolutely clear that the crowd, the whole thing was being driven by the crowd. That finally the crowd, the, 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 you know, the chief priests, the scribes, uh, the Jewish authorities that were trying to put Jesus to death were in, were in fear of the crowd. That Pilate was cowered by the crowd. That all the forces were ultimately boiled down to the crowd. And, and that's pretty amazing to have a text that explicit in that regard. In any event, there you have it. And then it says, Satan entered into Judas, who was one of the twelve. Now, in Luke's Gospel, the temptations... And this is a little indication, by the way, that we have to link the temptations to the Passion. In Luke's Gospel, Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, and then he left to return at a later time. And here he returned in the form of possessing Judas. Satan is the accuser and he comes back to get the process going. You could say Satan enters into this process in a much more uh, comprehensive way, uh, but this is the textual marker to indicate that the satanic uh, movement has begun and the satanic movement will be, will be the accusatory one that will begin to focus all the rage on, on uh, the victim. I say it should, we should link it to the temptation stories because the essence of the temptation stories, I think that the temptation stories can be boiled down to this. Namely, Satan saying to Jesus, it's possible for you to carry out your mission without having to go to the cross. I think all the temptations boil down to that. 
You could just dazzle them, then they would pay attention to you. You, see? you could take charge of all the kingdoms, etc., etc. All these things you could do. You wouldn't have to go to the cross. And I think, and Jesus will be tempted again, so to speak, on the Mount of Olives. And I think it's the same temptation. The temptation is to avoid the cross. So Satan enters Judas and he goes to um, to the Jewish leaders and is going to lead them to Jesus. So in preparing for the Passover, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city. And he says, when, quote, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him. And you go into his house and you tell him that, uh, you know, they want a room and so on. They get a room, upstairs room and so on. But men didn't carry water in those days. It was pretty strict. I mean, it wasn't a rule. It was just nobody did it. It was certainly not something you would go into Jerusalem. You wouldn't see men carrying water. And I find this an intriguing little reference here. And, of course, we could have fun with it if we wanted to think about it in terms of contemporary gender affairs and so on, uh, to which it's probably not unrelated, but I, I, I think it's, it's a much more profound reference. Let's face it, this, was, this is a highly, highly hierarchical culture, highly uh, patriarchal, and the, the jobs that women did were beneath the dignity of the men in most instances. So the very fact that the disciples are told to follow the man who's carrying the water jar, I think is just an intriguing little opening. As though, as though you see something that opens out beyond the conventions that you're used to. It's not a major thing, but I think it's interesting. In any event, they find a place. And then we have the Last Supper. Now, the Last Supper in Luke is pretty amazing to me because it's a total failure. It's a total failure. Now, first of all, in order to understand the Last Supper, I think you have to understand that Jesus sends uh, Peter and James in to get this room, an upstairs room. It's a kind of covert operation. Jesus is aware that they're after him. Now, if you think nobody who's read the gospel all the way through can possibly believe that Jesus had some kind of uh, martyrdom complex that he wanted to be killed. It's clear that he did not. N moreover, he, he didn't want to be uh, killed or even arrested just any place. And he realized that he could be apprehended at any moment. And he took measures not to be. Now, he took measures not to be because I think he understands it has to be Jerusalem, it has to be the Passover time, and it has to be under certain other circumstances. One of which is that there have to be a group... Now, this is overstating it, but I think there's truth to it. One of which is there has to be a community of people who can make sense of it after it's over. And that is the problem. That's been the problem all along. At least that's how I see it. And I tried to explore that in earlier weeks. What I call this epistemological fog that the disciples are in. Jesus can't get them to come out of it. 
And it's true all the way up through the cross. And now Jesus realizes that the, the clock is running out. And so he said, now, allow me this sort of, give me a little liberty here with the, the way I'm going to handle this material. But I think what you get in, in the Lucan gospel is an image of Jesus deciding, okay, one last time. I'm going to try one last time to get across to them what they need to know in order not to be completely scattered by what's about to befall them. And this is a, it's a very risky thing, you know, they're going to be scattered. It's sort of like the, it's sort of like the physicist saying, well, yes, indeed, the universe is flying away in all directions. And the question is, is there enough matter? Does it matter enough <laughs> to come back together? You see, is there enough matter so that at some point the gravitational pull of the matter will start to bring things back together again? Well, in, in some in, in some way, that's a kind of crude metaphor for the delicate problem Jesus has. He knows they will be scattered because, in a sense, he has to be. It has to be unanimity minus one, at least structurally. Uh, they all have to flee. They will flee. And the question is, will they, will, will they have been prepared enough for it so that, in retrospect, they will begin to see it in such a way that they'll come back together. Well, I don't think he feels that they will. So, in Luke's version, they sit down at the Passover meal, and Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And they still don't hear the last part of that sentence about suffering. I think they still don't hear it. But he wants to eat this meal with them. Why? For sentimental reasons? Old time's sake? Of course not. This is a form of communication. He's trying to get something across to them. So Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now the big question is, do what in remembrance of him? What does the word this refer to? Does it refer to the piece of bread? Take this piece of bread and eat it and remember? Yes. Is that all that it refers to, though? You see, Jesus is taking a loaf of bread and he's holding it up in front of them and he's breaking it. It's very important that we see this breaking of the bread as essential to the Eucharistic act. He breaks it and gives it to them. This is my body. Isn't it nice? Now watch this. Crack. And hands it out. 
do this in remembrance of me. And that's why I was saying earlier that the cross shows us how to lay down our lives. Not in some morbid way or uh, in, in some literal way, though those, those who are, who are uh, have, as, as Mother Teresa would say, those who are worthy may be called upon to lay it down like that in some literal way. But most of us who are not uh, are simply called upon to lay it down in some more prosaic uh, way. Nevertheless, that's the message, lay it down. So this is a form of communication. So he says, he breaks the bread, gives it to them, do this in memory of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, you see, break your life and hand it away. Pour out your, your blood, your life. So that's the message. And it's not, a, by the way, it's not a message about uh, uh, being this person who never thinks of oneself and always just thinking of others and all the sort of the way in which we we moralize around the message it's a message about freedom it's a message about being fully alive and being free and being fully alive and being free in such a way that it's possible to know the living God so it's not a long suffering it's not a message about long suffering or selflessness or something like that it's a message about being alive and free and in the position to know the living God. Now, you know, we have these, these images of the Last Supper and some very famous ones, of course. And in the images of the Last Supper, you have Jesus in the middle doing something very solemn and amazing. And you have all the disciples just looking, except maybe Peter is asking John, you know, who is it or something. There's a little thing. But mo- for the most part, it's, it's, uh, it's the perfect symmetry. Everybody's looking and, what it, and just amazed by what's happening. And in Luke, it's not that way at all. In Luke, Jesus has just said this amazing thing. And then he says, there's also someone here who's going to betray me. And then there's a little... There's a little hubbub, no doubt. And then it says, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> now this is, I mean, even by the standards that, even by the standards of the evangelist who, who are pretty candid about the, the apostles' incapacity to understand what Jesus was doing, Still, this is pretty remarkable. I think we have to understand that, that when it says who was the greatest, I think we have to understand that as a, as a controversy about who was going to take leadership of the community, who was going to assume leadership of the community. Jesus has just said that he's going to suffer. And they're beginning to see, oh, well, maybe he's not going to be here. And they immediately go off. He's just said to them, here's the, here's the message, folks. Take your life like this. Break it. 
you're going to see me. I'm going to break. I'm, mine's going to be broken here in a very short while. So you're going to be able to see what that might mean. Break it and give it away. That's what I want you to do. And 30 seconds later, they are squabbling over who's going to be the leader of the community after Jesus is taken away from them. In order to appreciate the cross, what we have to understand is Jesus went to the cross with his whole mission in shambles. He went to the cross with not a shred of evidence to suggest that anybody on earth was going to derive one ounce of benefit from it. That's what the cross is. That's what abandonment is. That's, that is, everything was gone. He didn't go to the cross thinking, well, these guys are going to carry my message to the world after I'm gone. He knew better. He, they were gone. He had tr tried his best, and they, they didn't get it. And that's precisely what you get in Luke's version of it. They're, so, uh, Jesus, so he hears them talking about who's going to take leadership, and he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So, he's trying to correct this. But meanwhile, they're talking about who's going to take charge of the community. It, did, it doesn't work. In the... In Luke's version of the Last Supper, what you have is Jesus coming in to, to tell this one last parable, as Jeremiah has it, this one last solemn parable, give them something that will be their connection to the meaning of Jesus' whole life. And he gives it to them in this solemn moment. And he can't even get their attention. They're talking at the other end of the table, you know. It's that kind of thing. Excuse me, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, can I have your attention? This kind of thing. It's a total failure. And, it's, and he has to get up from that experience and go face the cross. So that's what the cross is like. Dennis McBride, biblical scholar, says, Luke does not present the upper room as a place of light and clarity. <laughs> he says, There is a helpless honesty in his account which moves from apostasy through self-seeking and denial to total misunderstanding. There is confusion and ambition and hurt in the room. Jesus and his apostles are at cross-purposes, and all this seems to underline Jesus' failure to get himself across to his chosen few. Yet in the midst of all this misunderstanding and hurt bewilderment, Jesus speaks words of encouragement to those who will survive him. Again, in a sense, Jesus is undaunted because his, first of all, he's doing the will of his Father. So what he does is not based on how it's received by others. 
But also, I think, Jesus trusts that these words and gestures of his may come back to them after he's gone, which they do. That's Jesus' mission is understood in retrospect. Nobody gets it until after the cross. Nobody really gets it until after the cross. And it's made absolutely explicit in the next passage because Jesus then turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. But you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is an interesting passage because he says, first of all, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. I think it's a description of the sacrificial vortex. When this thing starts to generate its mystifications, everybody's going to be caught up in it to one degree or another. Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. Now, does that mean that he thinks some of them will stand by him? No, because the next verse, the next uh, phrase in the sentence is, and so when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. By that he means when, you, when, you have, when you've fallen away and then recovered yourself, then come back. So, so, so Jesus knows perfectly well that all... Because look what just happened at the Last Supper. Uh, here they are all by themselves in this upper room. No distractions. <laughs> you, see, you see? No, no mob scene. No prestigious Roman authority or, or uh, temple authority uh, in their presence. Just Jesus and his close friends. And he can't get it across to them. So he knows perfectly well that when all hell breaks loose, they're going to get lost. So the key is conversion afterwards. And I think that's the way, that's Christian conversion. Christian conversion is always after the, the fall after it, that's why it's always a, an act of repentance it's always we all it's always has to do with hearing the cock crow and jesus predicts that he's no longer hoping that there will be some people who will stand by him his only hope now he's praying and he's praying for them but he's not praying that they will stand by him he's praying that after they scatter they will come back and strengthen one another and then realize what his mission one so peter replies to this as we all know lord i am ready to go with you to prison and to death and jesus said i tell you peter the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me so then he gives a, 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 some preparation again he's preparing them to carry on after his death he says i sent you without a purse, a bag, or sandals out into the world? Did you lack anything? And they said, no, not a thing. And then he said, but now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. So, He's pre preparing them for hard times ahead. They are going to be, they will be thought of as associated with this criminal. 
and they will be hounded. And he's saying to them, you've got to survive. You've got to try to carry on. Uh, in a way, this is, this is Jesus, or at least the Lucan Jesus, counteracting the simplest form of the imitatio Christi. You know, they say the, one of the first heresies that had to be countered in, in Christian history was the idea that one should actively seek out martyrdom. because that's the simplest, most straightforward form of the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. But in fact, that's not it. In fact, this is, to some that, that is required, or some are called to that, but what Jesus is saying here is that we must prepare to carry this message to the world. And just as, the, just as Jesus was careful not to, to, to get into Jerusalem and get out, without getting arrested until the time came, his hour came. Likewise, he's preparing his disciples. There's one sort of funny aspect of this, of course, which continues on this theme of them not getting it. Uh, he says, uh, if you have no sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, we would say, given what happens later, when they, somebody draws the sword at the arrest and cuts off the high priest's ear, and he says enough of that and he reaches over and heals the ear and so on nothing in the New Testament suggests that Jesus uses the word sword here in any literal sense so most likely what Jesus is saying is arm yourselves see? prepare yourselves gird yourselves be ready you have to you have to uh, protect yourselves and he says it in such a way that they take it literally, which is so typical of the apostles. So here you get... Now, if he really meant sword, then this next verse wouldn't make any sense. So he says this, uh, because I'm going to be counted among the lawless and what is written about me is being fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And Jesus replied... That's enough. Now, the question is, how do you read that? <laughs> the people think two is plenty. <laughs> the Greek scholars say, no, the, the, the uh, Greek phrase is emphatic and ironic, meaning cut it out. <laughs> That's enough of that. I've had it with you guys. See? not two will do fine. You see what I mean? They missed the point. In other words, this fits into the whole scene at the Last Supper. They, not, they don't get it. And it shows that they don't get it when he's arrested later and somebody draws a sword and he has to chastise them for it. Next, they leave and they go to the Mount of Olives for what we, what we typically call the agony in the garden he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him when he reached the place he said to them pray that you may not come into the time of trial then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed 
And here's what he prayed. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And there are a couple of disputed verses here uh, which say that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him and that his anguish was so great that his blood mingled with sweat or his sweat mingled with blood. These are disputed verses largely because the Christians of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century felt that they were a little too... Uh, they, they showed the vulnerability of Jesus more than was appropriate. Uh, the Johannine Jesus, the idea of the Johannine Jesus embracing, going to the cross like a bride, that kind of thing, uh, had uh, had become the standard one. And this was a little too much. But I think they belong there because they show that Jesus was not a fanatic. Uh, there are plenty of fanatics who go to their... who, who First of all, there, there are plenty of romantics who wrap the drapery of their couch about them and lie down to pleasant dreams and there are plenty of fanatics who tuck the bomb under their coats and step onto the bus uh, Jesus was not one of those he did not want to die and we have to understand that lest we turn this thing into some circus he didn't want to die and he certainly didn't want to die the way you die when you die on the cross <coughs> and he prayed that he wouldn't have to now, what's interesting about this is that we have to understand, if we read this in light of what just happened at the Last Supper, now, it's, one never wants to psychologize Jesus, but just indulge me here for a second. In light of the Last Supper, think of this. Jesus now looks back on it, and he realizes the crowds, they're a straw in the wind. They'll go one way and another. They don't know. You, you know, you, they can be enthusiastic, but it doesn't mean a thing. And the disciples, they don't quite get it. The closest ones, the inner circle, you know, 30 minutes ago, they, they showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were completely oblivious to what was going on. So now Jesus is, is on the Mount of Olives. All he has to do is just slip right over the brow of the hill and go on back to Galilee and think it over, regroup, Start again. Forget the fishermen, you know. Let's get some synagogue people this time. Something else. Let's try another approach. You see what I mean? It's pot. You, we have to see. This is what... These are the temptations. The temptation is to do it without the cross. And Jesus is a human being, among other things. And he, he doesn't want to go to the cross. And he real, you see, if it had been nothing, if all these people were totally committed, and he knew that they were going to carry the message, and they would get it, they would understand this, this uh, giving, this breaking of of his body on the cross, and what it meant to the world. If he had understood that, he could have said, "Sure, okay." You see, courage and so on. He didn't have anything, and I think we have to see this. This is absolutely central. Because he had no nothing to go on except the promptings of his God. He had nothing else. And the promptings of his God had to go had to counter all of this other information that he had. 
So I would say at that moment, he could have gone over the hill, and he didn't. He came back, came down from prayer, came to his disciples, and they were asleep. But now he's ready. He has, he has prayed, and he has understood that he must allow himself to be handed over. And this handed over, which is a biblical way of speaking, is really a powerful thing. To be handed over is to lose control completely, is to go from action to passion. You see? The passion begins when he is handed over. That's, it doesn't begin the moment somebody hits him or spits in his face. It begins the moment they have him. And it's now out of his hand. He has been handed over. And he's handed over because the crowds come with Judas in the lead. And Judas uh, approached to kiss Jesus. And Jesus said, says to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? And that's always a very powerful thing, that the betrayal is with a kiss. And I think all of our Christian betrayals have been, or most of them, have been that kind of betrayal. We betray with a kiss. Uh, Henry Nouwen wrote on the Passion some years ago, and he, he said, in John's Gospel, Jesus dies, the last words Jesus speaks in John's Gospel is, it is accomplished. And uh, Henry Nouwen says, what is accomplished there is not just what Jesus did, but what he allowed to be done to himself. What happened to him once he was handed over. In other words, they did everything they could. There was nothing else they could do. You see? And the real contest here, the real contest, there is a contest. Luke uses the word agonia, which is the word agony, but it means in Greek contest, a struggle. An agon is a struggle. And when Milton wrote Samson Agonistes, it was, he was picking up on that Greek term, the, the struggle. And there is a tremendous struggle going on. And the struggle is whether or not everything they do to him can, can break his intimate contact with God. Can all of this violence and power and viciousness and ferocity cut him off from the love of God. This is why we, we have that in Paul, you know. Nothing can cut us off from the love of God in Christ. And we know that, Paul says, because of the cross. There's nothing they can do to us that will cut us off from the love of God in Christ. And we know that because of the cross. So the, the, the contest here is whether or not the world has in its arsenal, even at the bottom of its terrible arsenal. Anything that is capable of cutting us off from the love of God. In other words, they can destroy everything, but they cannot destroy that. And if we know that, once we know that, it's a tremendous liberation. It means we are never alone. It means we are never without the, the, 
the most important contact of all. It means the world cannot do anything to us, ultimately. It can kill us, but it cannot kill our soul. It cannot break that relationship. And another way of saying it is that love is stronger than death. That's the way we usually say it. But it's vividly expressed in the, in the cross. <clears throat> 